Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, 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 Seattle, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, commoner of cocktails, and... uh, well, you're Baron of Brewskies. It's uh, November now, and, uh, well, we've got some holidays coming up. Always exciting times. Get together with family and friends and, uh, well, uh, feast, <laughs> drink, and be merry. All that stuff, and that's what we like to do on Happy Hour Radio. I've got uh, two colleagues here. Um, Mark Papineau, who is a sommelier and a, uh, well, a uh, restaurant tour and a bar rant tour I guess you could say that but uh, along with him is my friend Luke Wallers who is uh, uh, the owner and founder of Walden Selections and also an advanced sommelier and these two cats are going to be talking about uh, some of the great bars around town and also some natural wines uh, wines made the natural way biodynamic etc etc so we'll, we'll learn all about that but uh, hey the holidays are coming up and um, this month I'll be hosting a special show that uh, revolves around all the great holiday gifts and comes to beer, wine, I should say alcohol, right? <laughs> Let's go right to the chase. All the great <laughs> gifts that in- involve alcohol are related to you. Don't, you can always give a bottle, but these will be books and toys and uh, gadgets and things like that. Uh, it's funny how many PR companies out there want to send me stuff, which is pretty cool. And I get to share it with you on air. So um, that'll be coming up uh, this November. But right now, it is happy hour and I'm feeling happy. It's uh, Saturday night at 6 o'clock. Uh, Mark Papineau, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey there. <laughs> hey there. Excited to have you. Um, you are, uh, you know, sommelier by trade, but also a restaurant tour. And, and uh, let's get a little bit about your history. How'd you get started in Food and Bev? Uh, I've been in the restaurant business probably since I was a kid. It's the first thing I made money doing. It was my first job uh, and have been in it ever since. Put myself through college in it and... Uh, at one point decided to uh, stay in it, and uh, it just made sense. It made sense. <laughs> hey, you know, so it wasn't lawnmowers, it wasn't washing cars, it wasn't recycling newspapers, it was working in a restaurant. So what was Definitely. the first style of cuisine? Was it a diner? Uh, no, I was a busser in a pizzeria. I grew up in New Jersey, um, Westfield. Uh, great pizza, East Coast pizza. What exit? You can't beat it. Yeah, good question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I started out in a pizzeria as a busboy, and... Uh, was in that for while I was in high school and through when I moved out here to the West Coast. When I started uh, working in the restaurant business, I think my minimum wage was $2.15. Uh-huh. Yeah. What was yours? <laughs> That's a good question. Two I slices, remember. Two slices of pie and a couple quarters, right? That's the way I... Yeah, right. $20 a week. Yeah, spending money or something like that. That's it. Get out of get That's out of here, kid. Now beat it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, well, excited about this whole New Jersey enterprise. When did you move over to the West Coast? I've been out here since the mid '80s. So I've been out here what about thirty years? Mid '80s. Those are good times. Yeah, Yeah. whole different beast out here. It was. Yeah, that was fun. Wild times without Mm -hmm. cell phones. It was MTV, (laughs) doing all that stuff. High school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, did you continue on with restaurants here in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, um, I worked. uh, I would say probably. I mean, to what led me to where I am right now, I would say was uh, 
starting at uh, Campania in the late 90s, um, where I was introduced to certainly fine wine and cuisine and like gracious service. I mean, that was my first uh, entry into what really could uh, take place and what we do as far as taking care of people. Was Cyril there? Was Cyril there at that time? Did he sort of mentor you, or who was your mentor? My mentor, when I first got out there, uh, in there, was, well, Peter Lewis was involved. Um, It was still, I mean, Peter Lewis, I think, kind of stepped out a little bit in the early 2000s, but Brian Hill was the wine director at that point. Jim Droman was still the chef. Um, A lot of old school, (laughs) legendary (laughs) restaurant people were there then. Uh, but I would say, you know, Peter Lewis was definitely a mentor for me, and I would still credit him as uh, the example that got me started on the road to where I am now. Uh, and Sean Mead, who actually was my introduction into running, uh, beginning to run uh, and take responsibility for a wine program, who she owns beef. Oh, yeah. With Lauren Feldman, who was also a companion. <laughs> companion. <laughs> yeah, we are, uh, well, I don't say incestuous, because that sounds uh, a little demeaning, but uh, we are such a integrated population of restaurant professionals, bartenders, etc. Sommeliers, of course, and um, I think it's something about having French cuisine at an early age in your life, early stage in life, where you uh, certainly appreciate the finer points and the, the oatness of it, the oat cuisine, and, of course, great wine, because I started at Lexus Hotel, and we had uh, Bruce Naffelty, who certainly had some, some French in them somewhere. Yeah. Uh, well, well, very cool. So w- you started your uh, your own endeavors. Uh, when did this? Sitka and Spruce in the Corson Building were your first endeavors. Uh, well, the Corson Building was when um, you know, I left Campania and went into the corporate world. I worked in hotels in the W uh, and in um, at Hotel One Thousand, running the wine programs, uh, and then stepped out of that uh, with Matt Dillon when he opened the Corson Building. Uh, in 2008 down in Georgetown. How'd you meet Matt? Uh, Matt and I worked together at a place called Supreme, which was an awesome little restaurant in Madrona um, that lasted probably two or three years, which in our line of work could be a blip almost, it seems. But um, he was a chef there, or the chef, uh, for a while, and we met there. I was waiting tables at night, and uh, we became really close friends and uh, saw that we really kind of have a very similar way of looking um, at the way we take care of people, uh, food, the way it's sourced, I guess, these days, uh, wine, all that. And we just were kind of soulmates. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's out. He's a best friend and he's a business partner. uh, It's a... a pretty heavy like partnership. And what year was this? Um, two thousand and three, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and so well, that's a testament to having that uh, that comforting soulmate as a partner because you've been in business now for twelve years together, thirteen years going on, and that's uh, most restaurants. The great ones last that long, but uh, yeah. obviously you guys started some cool stuff. So the first restaurant was called Sitkin Spruce. That was in that, um, you know, Matt is a progenitor of that project. And although he and I had worked together ostensibly to open a place, we didn't actually end up opening one together. Um, And I ended up going and uh, 
taking over the restaurant at Hotel 1000 and he ended up opening Sitka but then when he got the Food and Wine Best Chef Award in 07 uh, with Sitka and went on to start put together a project that became the Corson Building uh, and he got in touch with me we stayed in touch for this whole time because we always knew we wanted to work together um, when he opened that that was when I was uh, time for me to kind of jump <laughs> the corporate ship <laughs> into uh, something a little more grassroots, I guess. Yeah, uh, the whirlpool of entrepreneurship, right? Exactly. Yeah, you get sucked into the vortex. Yes. And, and it's so fun because everything's going so fast, a million miles an hour. Yes. Well, the Corson Building. Well, tell us about the style of the Corson Building, the restaurant and the bar and the, and the wine. Well, the Corson Building, uh, and still is, uh, was opened uh, in 08 and opened with three big communal tables uh, that we still use. Um, and the idea behind it was basically doing a single seating uh, without a menu. Um, everybody sits together. It's a family meal, family style. Um, and we started in the, uh, what was it, August of 08. And... Um, we would run dinners basically late week, Thursday through Sunday, um, with a single seating. You pay one price, an elective wine pairing. Uh, Matt would come out and talk about the food, and I would talk about the wine. And we would pair as the, we'd put a, me a menu together during the week. Uh, and of course, the wines accordingly taste through some things and make some decisions. And that's the way it rolled. It's, so without a menu, did you actually have a wine list, or was there no wine menu as well? Uh, no wine menu, at least not to start. As we moved forward, we uh, put together a list, um, but kept it very small, and we kept it very bare bones. What we were pouring that week was basically what we had in stock. So you either could do the pairing or do a glass of something in the pairing. Oh, okay. Um, but it was the same, kind of the same principle as the food. There was no... Um, is that a five-course menu or a six-course or...? Well, it was ended up being about five courses, but with each course, there could be a couple of different platters. Wow. And oh, it was Saturday, even served communal style. Oh, yeah. Oh, neat. It would come out. You would, um, guests would pass the platter amongst themselves. And uh, <laughs> you can imagine maybe how that can play out. Yeah. It was always pretty positive. We never had any fights break out, but there was always, uh, at least once a night, somebody that didn't get enough food or yeah we'd have to kind of massage assage that that uh, conflict well i have the mm -hmm. pleasure of speaking with mark papineau who is a sommelier and a restaurateur and a uh, well and a wine aficionado and um here in studio talking about his uh his progeneration progenitor of ideas and uh you started this the Corson building with matt is that correct uh he started it with wiley bush um his business partner there and then I came in shortly thereafter to kind of run the front of the house got it the wine side of things and then you've moved on now to start uh, some uh, Mark Papineau productions uh, yeah with with Matt um, Bar Ferdinand is ours um, Bar Ferdinand is where? up in Melrose Market which is where uh, Sitka and Spruce relocated from its original uh, address down on Eastlake um, so it's kind of a <clears throat> an indoor market over on Melrose Rose, just off Pine. Uh, and Sitka and ourselves 
uh, Bar Ferdinand opened in 2010. And uh, I, I know that's mostly, <clears throat> Bar Ferdinand is mostly uh, revolving around wine service, is that correct? It is. We're a, a wine bar and bottle shop. No food. Um, we offer the bar menu from Sitka if you want to eat. Sometimes we do the dinner menu from Sitka. Oh, cool. And you can bring food in from other places in the market. There's a butcher. They do their own charcuterie. There's a cheese shop. Right on. You can bring things in. We and it's been a success there up there in Capitol Hill? Yeah, we've been there almost six years. That's great. That's it. You've, uh, you know, they talk about that the seven-year itch, year but it's, it's the five years where you get, it's the make or break. And I guess you turn into profit, I imagine, by now. We're uh, staying alive. Yeah. We're still doing it. Paying the bills. And staying in black. And uh, <laughs> I understand you have a couple other projects. Uh, you mentioned Bar Sayor, mm-hmm. uh, the Little London Plain, the London mm-hmm. Plain, and Old Chaser Farm. Yeah. Uh, Bar Sayor and the London Plains. <laughs> Both of them are in Pioneer Square and Occidental Plaza. Uh, I do the wine for those restaurants. Um, and those are also projects that Matt started um, now probably two years ago. Wow. Well, I'm looking at seven different restaurants. That's perfect because you have you can be there one day a week in each <laughs> restaurant. That's about right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that's a, that's a healthy enterprise for any young man such as yourself who was biking around town and, and making the most of it. Um, are all the, the styles of cuisine similar? Are we talking about small, fresh plates and kind of farm-to-table stuff and uh, inspiration of the moment? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think that... <clears throat> Matt would probably hate to hear that farm to table term, but that is what it is. I mean, it's seasonal, it's <clears throat> sourced locally wherever possible. Pick to plate. How's exactly. that? <laughs> Very fun. Hunt to home. <laughs> Hunt to home. I like that. Well, uh, when we come back from this break, we're going to dive into some of the wine pairings that I know that you've, uh, uh, courtesy of Luke Wallace, Wallen Selections, he's in studio as well. Hey, Luke. Hello, how are you? Oh, yeah, yes. Great. <laughs> um, so stick around, folks. Uh, do you have a Twitter handle for any of these uh, restaurants you've got? At uh, Bar Ferdinand. Okay, at Bar Ferdinand. <laughs> and we are, of course, at Happy HR Radio. If you ever want to tweet us, send us a tweet. Shout it out uh, how much you love the happy hour. So stick around. We'll be right back. I'm your host, Christopher Chan. Hi, I'm Kamala Saxon with Marination, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. The Commute with Carlson, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Time for round two, and uh, I'm excited that I got... Well, I've got two glasses, so round two, I'm double-fisting here. I've got Mark Papineau, who is one of the hardest-working men in the industry, the food and beverage industry, and also a good pal, Luke Wallers, who's the uh, owner-founder of Walden Selections, and I'm pretty sure he's working his uh, cork off as well. Um, before I move into the wine, though, Mark, you mentioned uh, a new project. Tell me about the new project called what? Bar Ferdinand. <laughs> it's called Bur- the, the new Again. Bar Ferdinand Redo? Uh- well, it's a second one uh, that we're opening up on 11th, just off Pike in Chop House, which uh, is a project of Liz Dunn's, who was the, one of the developers on Melrose Market. Um, we uh, are set to open 
or should be open by now. Um, knowing that <laughs> so we're talking November, so it, and this yes. is November. This is November, um, which is also wine centric, uh, wine bar, but also with a lot more of a food presence. Uh, we'll have our own kitchen. Uh, we have a wood fire oven, smokers. Um, so while we'll still be wine focused, uh, we'll be bringing food up uh, to go along with that as well. How many square feet is this? Is the same open market style, or is this more of a uh, this three is, walls? Uh, there's three walls. Yeah, it's um, in the back of, and I wouldn't even say there's a common area. There's a corridor, but there are several businesses in there. Um, Kirk Timmermeister has an ice cream shop in there. <laughs> uh, Nisha uh, has opened, uh, and I can't, I don't know her last name, but she's great. She's got a little gardening supply store. Um, Rooftop gardens, huh? Is that what's happening up there? And... <laughs> they definitely have that, although this is down on the, in the plaza. And then Erica um, of um, Volunteer Mark, uh, Park Market or Cafe has a place in the very front. Okay. Bruce Naftali and his uh, lady Sarah are opening yeah. a Mecca home place. Wow. And then we're up in the back on the uh, patio. Wow, we're really uh, um, elevating the culinary scene in Capitol Hill, which has been going on for, gosh, it seems never to stop. All these new places and uh, some ingenious ideas. So yeah. very fun. Uh, I like the wine section part. Obviously, you know, you've heard me on Happier Radio. I think I put wine. Whenever I talk about anything, it ends up saying wine <laughs> instead of what it really is. Well, this time I know it's wine. I've got uh, two bottles of wine. I want to introduce Luke Wallers. Uh, uh, welcome to Happy Hour. It's great to be here tonight. Yeah. Well, tell us what you brought. This is uh, some of the portfolio in your Walden selections? Yeah, well, knowing that Mark was to be on the show, and he's such a great supporter of the natural wine movement, I thought it would make sense to bring two vintages of the same wine, uh, a wine that, from our portfolio, that fits that, uh, you know, that, that mark of natural wine. Well, let's give a definition of what natural wine is. Does that mean uh, the winemaker doesn't shave the legs and all that stuff? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of natural? You get away from Just about, just about. <laughs> There's uh, there's really not a, uh, a textbook consensus on what natural wine is, but in my opinion, it's uh, producers that are working with uh, with their own fruit. They're farming the land. Um, they're not using um, uh, terrible pesticides. Exactly, terrible pesticides. It's it's organic or biodynamic um, applications uh, on the vineyard uh, to create the health healthy um, soil um, to promote healthy soils in the vineyard. Um, they they are most likely working with native yeasts as opposed to commercial yeast, um, and they may 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 or may not be using sulfur dioxide and or uh, as a preserver, preservation agent in the process of the before bottling. So, um, ch typically, it's it's um, a lot of work to operate in this in this way because you're you're really focused on the wine at its at every stage from. The essence of the bottle. space, the essence of the plot and the, the hands that made it. Well, uh, these wines, the natural wines you brought today are from where? So this is from a, um, a wonderful and just remarkable estate um, up in the Colini Lucchese, or the hills above Lucca. So we're talking um, western Tuscany, north of Pisa. Um, these are friends of mine. I've, I've known this, um, the owners, uh, husband and wife, Moreno and, and Laura. Since the early 2000, uh, 2000s, I've sold these wines in retail, or, or was selling these wines in retail um, over the years. So now it's, uh, I think, 15 years or so I've been exposed to these wines uh, year in, year out. Um, and now, luckily, we're actually distributing, representing these wines in Washington State. Um, so 
the the estate is actually quite high up. We're talking uh, two thousand feet or so above sea level. Um, really, nothing between between them and the coast. No mountain ranges. Um, so there's uh, lots of rain. Uh, 35 to 40 inches of rain per year. So uh, already, you know, moving into sort of Seattle numbers. So they get lots of rain, also lots of sun because it's a very it's a very sunny place. They're higher altitude elevation. They also have lots of acidity. It promotes acidity. So lots of tannin, lots of color, lots of acidity. They really have. Uh, Is the soil resistant to some of that water? Because it's that's a lot of rain for grapes. They're actually so high up, and the 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 slope is so steep that. Um, there's a there's a perfect sort of drainage situation, where where the wine is not it's not growing in flat land, it's growing on a slope. Are these vineyards uh, similar to those in the Mosul, like coming up the river, or are they more like the Patamares in um, Portugal? Probably closer to the Patamares. The the Mo- I mean they're steep, but they're not as steep as as Mosul steep. They're not um, hanging hanging off the cliff with your, you know, your uh, climbing gear, Steve. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> but it's it's really remarkable. Uh, there's lots of cycling here. Um, it's it's just a, a stunning stunning place. And they this estate they work with uh, red wine, uh, a little bit of white wine that doesn't make it out of uh, out of the estate. Um, some honey and olive oil, which I think are the best. I mean, it's like the best honey and olive oil I've ever tasted before. This is it's just a magical place and. Uh, I I can't you know wait to taste the wine. So two vintages side by side. All right. And the name of, of this estate again is it's Tenuta di Valgiano, and we're tasting the Palistorti Rosso. Palistorti is is like dialect for um, uh, crooked 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 vine posts because the rock there's so oh, right. the soil is so stony the so rocky that the vine posts to to trellis the grapes they don't go in straight they go in at an angle. So it's this is a proprietary um, name. So Tinuti Valjana Palastorti Rosso. It's a blend of uh, mostly Sangiovese um, year in and year out. It's it's typically somewhere around seventy percent Sangiovese with a balance in Syrah and Merlot and some local grape varieties. <laughs> See, the local ones, yeah. yes. I can name them off for you, or we can just leave it at that. Yeah, we'll leave it at that, because those <laughs> ones get people confused. Well, Mark, um, give me your impression of these wines. What drew you to this style of, of winemaking and uh, viticulture and when it t- comes to natural? Because there's lots of uh, you know options out there, but you went this path. True. Um, I guess what attracts me to it the most is the, um, the breadth of... Uh, of what you taste, not just in uh, all the wines, but in each wine. It really, it seems, you know, in my experience working with natural or authentic winemaking, um, there's just so much more dimension to the wines. Um, even just, I you can't see, but I mean, or people can't see, but just looking at the two wines here, um, and two different vintages you can just see from one to the next. Now that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it being natural or not, but it takes that even a step further um, to where you're tasting something that is really the expression of where it comes from. It's not necessarily the hand of the person that made it. In a way, it's I look at it as the hands that make the wine are more like a shepherd rather than uh, forming the wines. And I, I it's just something that I more like a really shepherd than a butcher. Exactly. <laughs> and <laughs> I want to grow them and not kill it. I want to clarify that you said you like the breadth of the wines, the the expansive flavor profile of each of these wines, yeah. Versus the breadth 
Um, <laughs> Although I, <laughs> exactly. I really dig this Brett stuff. <laughs> the Brettanomyces, so uh, good. <laughs> um, and, you know, making and, and producing natural wines, uh, some of those uh, rogue yeasts and other, uh, well, acetobacters, the, the things that can make wines flawed are, are could be more prevalent based on the lack of scientific, uh, sure. uh, you know, inhibition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I just tasted the wine, the red wines, and obviously what's interesting for me is that this is really a kind of a super Tuscan blend. Correct. Which isn't near the coast. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. The the uh, French uh, French court, Napoleon actually set his sister up in a, a chateau in Lucca, and so the, the, the French court was based in Lucca from the early 1800s, and because of that, a number of chateaux, a number of properties... Uh, were established around Lucca and up in the hills, and the French brought with them the the Merlot and the Syrah. So, so this these grapes had been there for several hundred years. They're not. It's not just, you know, the 1960s super Tuscans. Let's plant some Merlot. No, these this was actually um, historical. Yeah, so. that's pretty neat. And Lucca is a beautiful town. One of my favorite of all of uh, Tuscany because that walled city, the bricks and the narrow uh, passageways with all the buildings, and uh, of course it. It was a prison, right? At one point, uh, maybe it was. <laughs> or a walled It'd be fortress. A pretty inf- and yeah. intimidating prison. <laughs> well, pretty fun. Well, when we come back from this break, we're actually taste some of these wines and uh, chat a little more with Mark Papineau, who is a restaurant tour and sommelier, and Luke Waller's uh, owner, founder, co-founder of Walden Selections, which is one of the newest um, distributors. And are you an import company? Uh, we will be as of uh, this month. This month, November. Perfect. Well, uh, stick around, folks. Coming back for round three, we're going to dive into these two wines, these uh, Palasorti di Valgiano, uh, 2012 and 2011, two red blends out of Tuscany. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Kristen Ackerman with Sip Northwest and Cidercraft Magazine, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KBI. Only one station has Sean Hannity. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m. on Talk Radio 570 KBI. It's KBI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalia, Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It's time for round three, and I've got uh, well, we got the three musketeers in the studio. Mark Papineau, uh, restaurant tour extraordinaire, sommelier, and event sommelier. Luke Wallers, the uh, co-founder of Walden Selections, and of course yours truly. Um, we got so many sommeliers in the house, and we got a corkscrew. Cause I, we must have a corkscrew. We actually got better. We have a Corvan. And speaking of holiday gifts, if you've got somebody who loves, who has got a great wine cellar, and some, you know, always worries about opening that special bottle, this is a perfect opportunity to get him a Corvan or him or her. Uh, Luke, tell us about this Corvan thing. Well, the, the Corvan um, was inter- I was introduced to the Corvan in, in New York um, in 2013. I noticed a number of uh, wine programs were using the Corvan, and I, I sort of I didn't know what it was about, but I've, I've soon learned that it was a way to essentially access a bottle of wine and take out what you want from the bottle without destroying, without you know, without actually having to open the bottle. So you could take off a couple of ounces, three, four, five ounces, pour yourself a glass, put the wine back in your, you know, in your cellar, or your refrigerator, and and uh, it's it's really a great tool to to be able to um, 
to just get what you want from the bottle and then um, go back to it at some point. Um, it doesn't work with screw cap. It doesn't work with um, plastic uh, artificial corks. But um, it just you got you got to try it. Corvin.com. Corvin.com. Well, um, it could be called the skimmer, right? Because you yeah, <laughs> pull yeah. a little bit off the top, <laughs> exactly. and it works. Because uh, you can open that special bottle of wine and not worry about it and having to drink the whole thing at once. And a lot of times, wines evolve over the course of their uh, aeration period. So, speaking of 2012 vintage in Tuscany, uh, what were the climate? conditions. Mm. I, I want to say that it was pretty standard of a vintage there, mm. of vintage for... Yeah, this is, uh, these two uh, wines side by side, I think, are a really good example of um, vintage variation because the 2012, which is what you're drinking in the left glass, is, uh, it's much paler, it's much lighter. Um, this is what the Tuscans would call classic. This is what they like to drink. This is, uh, it's, it's really fresh and bright, um, sort of almost um, freshly picked raspberries, cherries, that sort of fruit, uh, the red fruit, um, but just very high-toned and very uh, very um, crisp and refreshing. The the 11 is, uh, as you can see, it's a much darker color. This was a, one of the ripest vintages in Tuscany, so um, totally different, uh, much darker fruit. Uh, it's a richer wine, richer, bolder. So this is like night and day here. All right, well, uh, Mark, give us your impression of night, 2012. Well, on the nose, it's definitely got that riper black fruit compared certainly to the 11, which has that red kind of raspberry, red cherry. Um, and like, Wait, no, you said... Sure. So the, the I think we got your glasses the, backwards. Oh, I'm sorry, the 12. The 12 is, is the that first. sort of prettier... 12 is the... Uh, yeah. The... Light garnet, no, mm. <laughs> medium plus garnet, <laughs> modern intensity. Translucent. Yes. <laughs> See through it. Um, in, in my tasting the uh, 2012, uh, the tannin is prominent. I haven't tried the 11, so I'm going to take a sip of the 11. Uh, and, and give us your thoughts on the 11, Mark. What I was just talking about, <laughs> what I thought was the 12. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely like the darker, uh, riper style fruit. That's a. I can see that being a crowd pleaser because this is sippable by the glass, and mm -hmm. the first one is definitely a food wine. Although, mm -hmm. if you're into acid and good structure, then you'd really definitely love it for the twelve. But thirteen, excuse me, eleven is ripe. It is there more oak on here? Did they add a little yes. more, a little more oak yeah. too? And it's because of the vintage. Yeah, a fuller vintage, riper vintage. You could you could be in California, Bordeaux, wherever around the world. If you, if you've got grapes of a certain ripeness. Um, with a certain tannin profile, you can add a touch more oak, just to you know give it a little bit extra extra stability support. Yeah, I call it the sort of the toast on jam. You know, you, you got some fruit that <laughs> yeah. could either be a jelly or a jam, but the you know that goes great with toast, and that's Perfect. what a barrel provides. Um, <laughs> tell us again the uh, sapage here, the blend of red grapes. It says Sangiovese, Merlot, and Syrah. Is that correct? Correct. Oh wow! And then a couple others just for fun. A couple others just for fun. I I think um, the uh, the twenty eleven. You can taste a bit more of the Merlot and the Syrah in the blend, and a bit more of the Sangiovese in the 2011, uh, 2012, excuse me. Right on. So. And where can we find these? We can find these at all of your, your seven restaurants, seven nights a week? Uh, certainly at Ferdinand. We carry this uh, at Ferdinand by the bottle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like it. And uh, where can we find these retail? Well, they're actually retail at Barford. Perfect. So you can actually have a glass and buy a bottle. You can indeed. Awesome. Well, what are we what are we uh, talking? Is this uh, thirty four bucks, thirty eight bucks? Um, I think at Ferdinand these are in the low forties. Low forties. I was right there. Forty three. Yeah, that's a deal. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of going on here, and I, I we always were. I can say I shouldn't say always, but consumers 
don't always understand pricing. And it's like, why does a bottle of champagne cost so much? Well, because for most of all, the vintage champagnes, they're sitting on it for six years, but no one knows that. And so they don't talk about that. So here's an instance where you've got natural winemaking. means they're working a lot harder. They have to do everything more manually and by hand and, and take greater care versus, you know, let's go spray it with uh, our Bordeaux mixture or whatever it is and let's call it done. And um, Modern winemaking has made a lot of efficiencies, but it also has sort of, in some ways, it can often strip away some of the uh, delicate nuances of uh, the the uh, mano e vino kind of thing, hands-on wine. Yeah, agreed. And um, what's the production here for these? So um, this is actually, speaking of modern, this is a modern estate. They um, The owners b- bought the property in 91, and... Um, had a winemaker who was advising him to, in fact, not buy the property, and um, he ended up becoming their winemaker. He's been there since the, <laughs> since day one. Maybe he, he wanted it not to buy secretly it. Secretly wanted it. <laughs> he said <laughs> it was a lot of work, a lot of work. So um, it's been a lot of work for him. But he basically the early days were. Um, th- this is not a known wine growing region. This is a, this is a sort of uh, mar- you know marginal uh, region. Um, I think as wine becomes more and more um, recognizable, especially from Tuscany, some of these regions that were that were unknown regions in the past will become known regions, and this is one of these regions. In the early days, they essentially they went down to uh, their local sort of co-op and and they said we've got this this vine disease um, or this the you know the grape grapes are turning a certain color or how do you how do we deal with this and so they would send them off with a bucket with some um, kind of colorless powder and say put some gloves on and you know spray this on the vineyard and then they they just they they didn't realize why understand how why they were spraying this sort of toxic you know glove handling material <laughs> uh, why they had to spray this on the on the vines and so they um they reached out to um someone in the biodynamic world and they wanted to go in this direction of of cultivating their their vineyard without you know, having to apply uh chemicals without um without damaging the vineyard. So um, this is the direction they went. They've been biodynamic since 2001, Demeter certified. Um, so the, the production really is, uh, it's very labor intensive, um, lots of plants involved in the in the vineyard. Mm. So you're, you're, um, the idea behind fixing, behind plants and vineyard are, um, well, there's the idea of, um, of biodiversity. So you've got lots of um, bees and, and uh, you know, healthy insects insect population. Um, you, plants are also used to, to fix uh, nitrogen and um, to encourage um, more nutrients in the soil, which makes the grapes healthier, which makes for an easier ferment, which makes for you know cleaner wine, which makes for so on and so forth. So there's a direct link between healthy vineyard management, organic, biodynamic, and better wine. Yeah, and the so. idea of healthy vineyard management has really evolved going back to the old days where you didn't have all these pesticides killing, you know, Roundup killing the weeds because the weeds were homes for the special beetles that ate the little aphids that affected mm-hmm. the, the vines. So when you have the biodiversity, you're, you're obviously having a whole ecosystem that uh, supports the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Mark, tell us some of the great wines that you love uh, at Bar Ferdinand. Obviously, Natural wines here today. Uh, is your list con- completely natural, or is it more uh, niched? Probably uh, more of a niche thing. Um, we do lean in the natural toward a natural style of production, but really the um, first thing that we're looking for and that we've tried to cultivate is family-owned um, and family-operated production. Uh, small, certainly. 
Um, and also at the same time, things that are accessible, um, certainly in price point uh, for people. Uh, we try and steer, or I try, I don't do 100% natural wines, but most of what I carry is definitely um, uh, native yeast fermentations, um, leaning toward non-interventionist, like less is more style of winemaking. <laughs> That's important. I think it's coming around. Less is more these days because you're getting less alcohol. You can drink more. <laughs> Some of these wines. Well, Mark Papano, what a treat! Uh, so happy to to reconnect with Thanks you. Thanks for having and, us. And uh, would love to get out to uh, Corson Building, Sitka Spruce Bar, Sior, uh, the London Plain, Bar Ferdinand, and Old Chaser Farm, which you can find online. And Luke Wallers, always a treat to have you. Thanks for sharing your great wines, and I look forward to seeing you um, sometime when we have some Chablis. We'll get you some Chablis. You. All right? Thanks, guys. See you soon. Hey, folks, stick around. I've got a great guest. It's our Gin of the Week, and I've got Gene Shook of the GinSociety.com here in Seattle. Come up with uh, one great big gin. So stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Hi, I'm Lance Winters with St. George Spirits, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with the fabulous Christopher Chan on 570 KBI. A look at the world from a Northwest perspective. Lars Larson, live, weekdays, noon to 3. Talk Radio 570 KBI, want to know weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, welcome back. It's time for another round, round four here. And uh, I got a segment here called uh, The Gin of the Week. And uh, one of my pals in the industry, Gene Shook, who actually started the Seattle Gin Society. And Gene, uh, welcome to Happy Hour. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, so uh, the Seattle Gin Society, tell me all about this. Sure. Seattle Gin Society started in 2009. Um, and it started like a lot of things do in the industry in that a group of us were having a quite wonderful night drinking at a local bar and we were talking about all the new distilleries opening and many of them were going to start coming out with gin and gin is challenging in the market because a lot of people had a bad experience in high school or college with gin and high don't <laughs> don't really drink it anymore. Um, so we, we wanted to figure out a way of bringing gin back into the market and in, in our, we said, well, we should start the Gin Society and have people meet on a regular basis and discuss gin. And, um, you know, my friend said, well, maybe that's okay. And I said, well, and we're going to do an annual competition called the Ginvitational. The Ginvitational. The Ginvitational, which we've done every year since then. And my friend said, well, you can do this group as long as you don't do the Ginvitational. And because he didn't like the name and I like the name. So we've done the Ginvitational every year and Gin Society now is in our sixth year. We have three chapters, one here in Seattle, one in Vancouver, British Columbia, and one in New York. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, we've got at least uh, two anchors here in the West and an anchor over there in New York. So, at Seattle Gin is your Twitter handle, and I'm at Happy HR Radio. Uh, when it comes to gin, obviously, you're right. In high school, we have a bad experience because we're adventurous <laughs> and, and, and going to mom and dad's cabinet. Um, my first pull was from Lafroy Scotch, and that was pretty nasty. <laughs> and then gin, oh my God. Yeah, people people mix it with milk in, in high school. That's not a good idea. I don't no, recommend that. I saw that in a movie, I think. It was vodka, <laughs> but it was just gross yes. but gin has come a long way and I have to be honest this this past summer this beautiful summer I fell in love with gin gin Excellent. was very refreshing um, and the gins are, are less juniper based now mm -hmm. they're more citrus and, and floral and um, just exotic the, right. uh, the gin, gin, juniper <laughs> juniper is, yeah. is just 
kind of nasty. And it, it always has that, that that mint. It's like, you know, you were drinking in, uh, uh, well, anyway. Uh, let's talk about gin. So you have a yeah. gin of the week for me. What did you bring today? Today I brought our good local product, Big Gin. Big Gin is made by Captive Spirits up in Ballard. Um, I think they've done really a, an amazing job at a, a new American, new Western-style gin. Um, the categories for gin can be kind of confusing in that, you know, everyone thinks of London dry style gin or gin is supposed to taste very dry. Well, um, Ben Capteville and his wife Holly created this gin. Um, they, they have a family history of, of creating homebrew and ended up wanting to make a really big, solidly tasting gin. This one, I think you're going to find a little more junipery than you might be used to. Uh, well, it's, it's, Pleasant juniper because yeah. I think it's uh, a part of a uh, a more complex aroma here. You've got what cardamom I think is in cardamom, there. Cardamom and um, four or five other spices are in there. A big big reason that I got interested in the gin part is distillers. It's one gin can be made in roughly three weeks. Um, you can make it even shorter. And the exciting thing is the distiller. It, he can be a chef. He can mix together different spices and in a short period of time come up with something that's a, a signature in his identity. And I think the the big gin is truly one of our Seattle best gins. Uh, well, I'm excited to taste it. You're right. It, it has a hint of sweetness on the palate. First of all, I think that's quite approachable when it comes to gin because sugar helps mask um, some of the astringency of some mm -hmm. of these uh, botanicals. And uh, so when it comes to juniper, it's like spearmint with, with spearmint gum. It tastes right. good when it's sweet. Now, uh, this certainly has a nice body. It's uh, it's kind of fat. There's a certain weight to this. It's the umami. It has a big mouth to it, um, unlike sort of the traditional British-style gins, which we don't have any here today and we won't be talking about. But um, we're trying to really focus on what we're doing in the West right now. I love it. And so uh, Big Gin is made from Captive Spirits down in Ballard. And I'm sure yep. they have a tasting room and you can go visit. Um, uh, this is a cool bottle. And Big Gin is, is definitely a label that you can recognize because it's got <laughs> pretty simple. <laughs> you can always see it on the bar shelf. It is, just look for it in the gin section when you're, when you're at your local bar and you'll see it. Or pretty much every liquor store now is carrying it. Um, it works Unlike many new American gins, it actually works in all of the traditional cocktails. I was going to ask you. Yeah. What, so, what would you recommend just for one or two cocktails? I, you know, I love it in a traditional martini. What I have to remind people is you really probably want to go a little heavier on the vermouth when you're using this gin. Um, the dry style gins that, uh, the dry martinis that are traditionally thought of, um, well, the, the vermouth wasn't really all that good. That's one of the oh, reasons yeah. people went in the direction of the dry martini. Right. The, gin, the quality of the gin far out surpassed the quality of the vermouth. Locally, most producers, we have four or five vermouth producers in Portland and Seattle um, that are doing a fantastic job. And I would experiment using the local vermouth with um, our wonderful big gin, and you'll find some really fascinating, flavorful, yet still definitely a martini. I love it. Gin-society.com. I've got Gene Shook here, and uh, that's our gin of the week. It's Big Gin over in Ballard. Check it out. Uh, captive Spirits. And folks, hope you enjoyed today's show with Chablis. I want to thank uh, my guests and Gene Shook. Uh, I'm going to have you back next week, and we'll chat more about gin. So thanks, to folks. Um, that's a, a wrap. It's Happy Hour Radio. I'll see you again next week. Cheers. <laughs>